0: Everyone, welcome to the podcast for this week. Um, last week I went a little bit over. I know I said our podcast would be about 10 to 15 minutes only. Last week I think it was like 23 minutes or something. So, this week I'm going to keep it short and sweet for you guys. Um, we're going to be talking about some comparisons, uh, and some dichotomies that have kind of been set up in the literature. So, really discussing, um, the difference between developmental approaches and behavioral approaches and how that plays out uh, in practice, whether that be in residential care, in youth work, in family homes, etc. So let's get started. Okay, so basically the foundation of Kind of all of the conversation and all of the reading for this week is on the idea of internal controls versus external controls, and we're going to kind of branch out from there as we move forward. so when we talk about external controls, we're really talking about um you know consequences or uh you know other kind of behavioral modification strategies that are used external to a youth, so by a staff member or a parent um or a youth worker what have you um to create a desired change in a youth's behavior. And when we're talking about internal controls, we're talking about, you know, a youth or a parents uh, or, you know, whomever person served uh, decision or Um, choice that they're making their own self-control is um, what we're referring to when we talk about internal controls. So when we discuss internal control versus external control, the question isn't whether there should never be external control. The question is how we shift the dial as someone progresses developmentally. And the idea is uh, in a developmental approach that over time we are going to continually be relaxing external controls and helping to build capacity for internal controls. Comparatively, in a behavioral model, the external controls will always be in place because the belief is that that approach is what's actually creating change. Even though as you would have read in the reading and as we're going to discuss further in class, that is not the case. So what the literature indicates and what I'm assuming most of our anecdotal experience indicates both, you know, us when we were adolescents and or uh, us as practitioners is that someone externally controlling your behavior doesn't usually make lasting change. So yeah, that sets up the rest of our conversation in this podcast. One thing I wanted to clarify before moving forward is that um, oftentimes when we label children or adolescents or parents as not having, quote, good self-control... we neglect or we overlook the fact that um, oftentimes they do have lots of self-control in other areas. Um, Those areas may just not be as socially acceptable as what we would hope. And there's some examples of that in the reading. But I just wanted to identify that when I'm using the term self-control in the rest of this podcast, or as you're looking through the readings, when we're talking about internal self-control, I'm referring to self-control that is able to be Directed or modulated to be socially beneficial or acceptable. And the way that that comes about is typically that somebody has to develop a capacity for empathy and guilt. And so, in order to develop that capacity, they actually need to help to move through the developmental stages. So, that's what we're talking about here. That we would be, of course, supporting children, youth, and families to move through, especially those initial developmental stages, so that they gain the capacity to actually direct their self-control in a way that is socially beneficial and beneficial for themselves as well. So I just want to be clear about that when I'm talking about self-control I'm talking not talking about generalized self-control but talking about self-control directed in a way that is socially beneficial or appropriate Okay, so moving quickly on from internal versus external control. Um, I wanted to talk about control versus management, which is otherwise stated as good behavior versus self-control, which is otherwise stated as compliance versus responsibility. And what this really comes down to when we're talking about the difference between a behavioral or a developmental model is what our target is. So Jack really clearly lays out in the reading that the overarching goal of almost every treatment program or family intervention program or therapeutic home or youth work facility or what have you is to create more capable functioning people the problem is is that we sometimes have divergent ideas about what targets we need to reach in order to do that and so when we believe that our end goal is helping to produce more capable human beings and we try and get there by making them be compliant or focusing on good behavior or trying to control their behavior, um, ultimately that's going to be not only exhausting for us and for them, um, but relationally divisive and also not impactful. Um, you know, it having an external control, Uh, on your behavior only works as long as that control is in place if it's never been internalized. So for example, this is where we see sometimes that, um, youth who've been in group care do far worse in supported living placements, like supported independent living still placements, um, than youth who were living on the street or were living with family, not just because of, you know, trauma or what else might've happened to them, but because, We hear a lot, you know, group care breeds compliance. I remember Jack blew my mind when he asked our class, um, you know, what's what's your end target for this youth? Do you want them to be like a, a really great maid? Because if all you're focusing on is their ability to get up on time and make their bed, that's what you're promoting. So hear me when I say it doesn't mean that we're never going to have standards for certain things. It just means that um, as we're looking at responsibility or self-control or management of behavior, um, what we're really looking at is... Helping an adolescent or a parent or whomever internalize their reasons for making a certain choice and build on their capacity to make that choice and that's really critical because that's going to carry them far beyond you know the walls of our program. If we have helped a youth you know get up on time and do their homework and make their bed and make their lunch every day um, and that's what we've succeeded at doing only because we made them do it. That behavior is going to fall apart as soon as they're not in the program anymore. And that does them a huge disservice. So, when we're taking a look at a developmental program model, we really need to be looking at based on this person's unique and individual development, how are we helping them to progress developmentally and to develop those internal controls? Because when we have normative development, people develop those controls over time. When you're two, you don't have the capacity to not throw a tantrum. We don't get candy. When you're 16, if you've had normative or neurotypical development, usually you have that capacity. Um, the individuals that we're working with, the person served, um, often have very legitimate reasons for being developmentally delayed, um, in these areas, in these socio-emotional areas. And so we really have to help them move forward by internalizing that, um, sense of autonomy, by internalizing their sense of personal power, and by finding success in making decisions that benefit them. So I had said previously that developmental models don't mean that there are no external controls and then everyone just runs wild and you know we hope that by being kind and nice people that things are going to work out okay. Um, There's a lot of theoretical basis behind a decision to work developmentally Um, but what I wanted to draw attention to is that external control is a useful tool even for working developmentally but it has to be deployed correctly. So the first thing that we want to say is if people don't feel safe there's no opportunity for learning. That's it's not possible. Just neurologically, we know that means they're operating in their lower brain and oftentimes the higher order functioning in their prefrontal cortex isn't even turned on. Um, that's true for all of us as human beings. It's just how our brain works. Um, and so when we're thinking about employing external control, oftentimes At the beginning of working in a new place, or when someone is new to a home, or when things have been particularly heightened, it can be helpful to use appropriate external control techniques, like consequences, to help establish a safe environment. However, we need to be really, really sensitive to the point that um, external controls no longer are necessary, Because if we switch too far to the other side of the spectrum and just use external controls for everything, even when someone is developmentally capable of making their own good decisions, we actually really... Can act in a destructive way that can be really destructive to someone's sense of personal autonomy. You know, it's that sense of being really micromanaged. Have you ever been at a job and you knew you were competent and you were trying to do, you know, your very best and you knew you were doing good work, and still the person over you asked you every five seconds what you were doing and made you report on, you know, every minute of your day and. Uh, you wanted to double check all of your work three times because they weren't certain you could do it. Well, that's essentially what that's like. We're micromanaging somebody else's, you know, moral and social decision making. And so we want to be really aware that we're using external control as a tool, but then we're going to dial that down as someone develops the capacity to manage their own behavior so that we can promote personal control and autonomy, leading eventually to our collective goal of self-control and uh you know full functioning for that individual as they move forward in their life okay in this section i just wanted to harken back to last week when we talked a lot about developmental humility and really leaving space for worldviews and perspectives that are not your own. Or that might in fact directly contradict your own. And that concept is still really critical when we're talking about you know, approaching our work in a developmental way. Um, because we want to talk about adult logic versus immature logic. And immature logic just meaning logic that hasn't been fully developed. Um, we want to be clear that using quote logical consequences that are logical by our own adult standards um, are not going to be helpful for somebody else. Is not going to be helpful for someone else, uh, particularly for somebody who is, is not going to be helpful for someone that doesn't see the world the way that we do. So Again, if we're employing logical consequences that are only logical by our own standards, but are in fact illogical to the youth or parent or family that we're working with, then what we're really doing is undermining the relationship and demonstrating that we don't understand their worldview, and oftentimes reinforcing unhelpful beliefs they may already have such as beliefs that other people like to inflict pain upon them, um, that child and youth care workers or adults in general are out to get them. These are some very legitimate worldviews that uh, you know youth in care or families involved with the care system or families just seeking help in general um, may have developed. And so we want to be really aware that, again, employing consequences that don't make sense to those demographics of people is not going to be helpful and, in fact, is going to be totally counterproductive. Last but not least, I wanted to talk about youth needs versus staff needs. And there's this section of the reading where Jack asks, you know, if we know that Research-wise, punishments don't work for individuals who are struggling with, um, you know, developmental delays, socio-emotional developmental delays. If we know that um, external control only works for as long as someone's in a program, it doesn't create lasting change. If we know that the process of using external control and trying to reinforce early bedtimes and use complicated level systems, you know, only creates division and relationship and exhaustion for everyone, then why do we keep doing it? And he brings up a really salient point that often the external control is being used to relieve staff anxiety and not for the benefit of the young person. Um, You know, we need to consider what's in their best interest. This may result in us having to help them walk through support and manage some, some challenging behavior, some challenging, um, emotions or beliefs that might come up. Um, but if all that we're doing is trying to get through a shift unscathed, if we're trying to have as minimal discomfort as possible on our own part, then we're really doing a disservice to the people that we're working with. And quite honestly, we should probably reconsider whether we're working in this field. If our end goal is to make it through the night as easily as possible, um, then this likely is not the role for us because when we're working as developmental child and youth care practitioners, we need to be engaged in the life space with the people that we're working with um, and willing to take those steps into things that are uncomfortable while maintaining safety. Um, But our first thought can't be for our own comfort over the progression and growth of the people that we serve. Now, the one caveat I'm going to add to this is if you are a new practitioner within your first 12 to 18 months of practice, this is totally normal. This is part of your development as a practitioner and you are trying to develop safety for yourself and that's absolutely appropriate. Um, If it progresses past that point and your only focus is your own comfort versus, um, as I mentioned, the development and growth of the people that you're serving, um, then I would encourage you to speak with someone about that. I think it's important to consider, you know, what is meeting youth needs versus what is meeting staff needs in a lot of arenas. But in particular, when we're talking about developmental versus behavioral approaches, um, because developmental approaches are by nature focused on the person served and behavioral approaches while sometimes, uh, masquerading as being intended for the person served really seem to do very little more than to alleviate staff anxiety, you know, if they're carried out beyond baseline safety being established. So just something to consider as we move forward and something that we might talk about in our live session as well. So that's it for this week. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts in the discussion board and seeing you all at the live session. Have a great week.